Hello, and welcome to Creating Happy Healthy Pets 2023, Bark and Whiskers Anniversary Week Special. Join us as we feature a pet expert every day, each sharing their expertise to help you continue creating happy, healthy pets. Without further ado, let's jump right in to today's interview. Enjoy watching. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and I'm so excited that today we have animal physio, Sarah McKeegan, who runs both Upper Dog Rehab and the Dogs with Disabilities platform. I know Sarah well because we have rehabbed some well-loved dogs together, and I'm so thankful that she's joining me this week to talk about some really important things when it comes to keeping animals happy and healthy, regardless of their ambulatory status or how in shape they are. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Dr. Becker, thank you so much for having me. It's I have be on your platform and to be able to talk about something that I'm passionate about, dog mobility and exercise. It really is an honor. So I want to say thank you for having me here and uh, talking about dogs and exercise and movement. I, I think it's wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate the fact, and I, of course, I know who you are. We've worked together for years, but yeah. for people that don't know, how and why you took your human physio degree and then move that to rehabilitation, which is what we have to call it in the animal space. Yes. How did that, I know that I know you went to school with the intent of doing that, but what was Sarah, what's the motivation behind you spending years and years and years in school for human physio and then immediately getting out and mm -hmm. just moving, adding an extra two legs to your client base? My dog. Uh, Sammy, as you know, um, she actually had injured herself. She very common injury, cranial cruciate ligaments, like our ACL in our knees for anyone that's had knee injuries. And when I was rehabbing her, I, there was a physiotherapist mentoring the vet. And I was like, physios can work with dogs. And when the second knee went, because the second knee usually does, and at that point in time, I was like, I really want to do this. I always wanted to work with animals when I was younger. And I just ended up down a different path. And this was, she was that pivot point for me. And the means to working with dogs was physiotherapy with humans. But I, I, I treat my pet parents, but I prefer my, my furry friends. <laughs> yeah. So I, I literally, yeah, right. <laughs> I literally quit my job. I flexed my hours so I could take some courses to upgrade and left my job. I sold my house and I went back to school with folks that were a lot younger than me <laughs> to do my uh, master's in physiotherapy. So in Canada, we do a, physio a master's in physiotherapy, became a licensed PT, and then went on immediately uh, to begin to train with a diploma in canine rehab. So in the States, there's also um, the Canine Rehab Institute and other certifications. Mine is our diploma program in Canada, but it's been a very intentional path to dogs. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and I find it wonderful. I, I find it exceptionally refreshing. So I am a veterinarian that took uh canine rehabilitation yeah. course. And so vets can become licensed in rehab it's a very different thing than spending years and years and years with the detailed training that you have. It's very different. And I'm the first one to acknowledge that. I find it wonderful that 
you also, it's not just knee dogs and back dogs, as we call it in the profession. You have a pretty special place in your heart for the really hard things, animals missing all their limbs, animals that are quadriplegic, paraplegic, animals Mm -hmm. that have had profound trauma to their bodies. That's a tough feel, girl. How how, That's hard. (laughs) I... Sometimes you pick your path and sometimes your path picks you and my path picked me and I'm going to go there, but just to back out a tiny bit when you were talking about, I want to acknowledge the fact that you recognize that the way as physiotherapists or physical therapists, we kind of approach things a little bit different. It's really about something called client-centered care and we do what's called a path of functional diagnosis. So it's not, Often your vet will diagnose your dog with that CCL tear or intervertebral disc disease at T11, 12 or something along those lines. As a physiotherapist, the way I look at it is not just the injury, but what's happening in the rest of the body, what has contributed to it, how it's impacting mobility and other factors throughout the rest of the body. Maybe there's other injuries, other comorbidities, And then what do we, we is the key word here, begin to do to restore mobility? Because it's very much a collaborative effort. It's not, I always tell people when I talk to them before they come in, I'm not a drop-off pickup service. You are part of the process. Your dog is the center of the process. And you are an active, empowered pet parent to be part of your dog's mobility plan and part of the recovery. Because I spend a small percentage of time with your dog and you spend this much time with your dog. So what you do actually makes a really big difference versus the little bit that I do. I mean, I do my, you know, as a physiotherapist, I, you know, have skills with my hands where I do manual therapy. A lot of people think of chiropractors, but physiotherapists also do a lot of manual therapy. Those that are, again, the caveat is they're certified and trained to do it. Because some people use the word physiotherapy, but they don't necessarily have the training. So it's always important for pet parents to make sure they have credentials. But yes, I use my hands. I use modalities like laser therapy, acupuncture, muscle stem, um, exercise therapy. So certain exercises with the intent of getting certain results, mobility aids, which I'm going to talk to a bit about when I have this special population that I, I work with. And um, the other piece of it is the exercise and the education. So really teaching you how to work with your dog and what to look for and what in the progressions and the reassessment. I've met a lot of people who feel stuck with their dogs. And part of it is that their dogs are never reassessed and it's never changed. And that reassessment is it's so important because you can't progress if you don't create something new and you can't see if you time to progress or if what you're doing is working, if you don't reassess. Right. So when I say my path chose me, Sammy, Sammy was like a cat with, you know, this beautiful white shepherd, but with every problem that seemed to be possible yet, incredibly happy she taught me so much about life yeah and perseverance and um you know adaptability again yeah she while i was finishing school 
and I will, I remember this because I, I, I don't know if you've heard me tell the story, but you <laughs> were actually the person that, that told me what you thought was going on with Sam. And um, I remember you saying to me that you thought, cause we, we knew that Sam had little osteophytes on her lower lumbar area. And we thought that was the reason for her decline in mobility in her hind end. And it wasn't, it might've been contributing, but it, it wasn't what you saw that my very green eyes didn't see yet was something called degenerative myelopathy, which is very similar to ALS in people. It actually shares the same genetic mutation as about 20% of ALS people, um, people with ALS. And I remember being on training for canine rehab when I saw my first dog with DM and I saw, I, you didn't warn me, I was gonna be emotional in the beginning of your interview. But I saw my first dog that had this progressive condition and I couldn't even comprehend it. The emotion was, it was the winter, it was February, it was Ottawa, it was snowing, it's like minus a thousand outside. And I literally got up, walked across the arena, out the door and ride a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Sam taught me so much and I've been blessed to have people like yourself that have taught and shared with me. And Sam, Sam lived for almost five years, which is basically yeah. unheard of. You know, the average lifespan of a dog with GM is six to 12 months max. Yes. And granted, she didn't have the use of her back legs, but I learned through other people and through her what other options were available yeah. to slow disease progression and to make sure she still had a good quality of life. Because really, at the end of the day, they're they're not just here for us. They're here because we want them to be happy when they're here and have a good life and be mobile and be active. And that's what I mean when my path chose me, because when I started working, Sam passed away right before COVID. And then when I started in lockdown and couldn't go anywhere, I couldn't treat. And I see all these people struggling online. That's when I started the Facebook group, Living with Dogs with Disabilities. And it was therapy for me. And I was able to share a lot of knowledge and bring people on that could help pet parents that were going through challenging times with their dogs and not having to weed through all of this misinformation online. But over time, I also began to learn that there was a lot of other things going on and a lot of, I want to say system things, but yeah. I've met over, especially in the last year, a lot of dogs also, a lot with DM, even though it's rare, and a lot with something called intervertebral disc disease or where, um, you know, you're, a lot of people describe it as my dog seemed a little bit off. I woke up in the morning and my dog couldn't walk. And the, the emotion that goes along with that. And I've heard so many times of pet parents going to their vets or going to emerge and being told, there's not really anything you can do. Your dog's too far gone. Or, you know, he's, you have two options, really. You know, the surgery is in Canada, about 13, well, where I am, about $13,000. Or, you know, your dog's not going to walk again, so you can euthanize. And a lot of these dogs, Dr. Becker, they walk again. I yes. I've had them walk yes. into my clinic. Yeah. And I'm like, this isn't, this needs to change. Like, this yeah. isn't, 
it shouldn't be this way because these dogs, and I hopefully we can talk about it a little bit, even with, let's say they don't walk again. That doesn't mean they can't have a great life. Yes. If you know how to care for them and give them a great life. Yeah. Which is why I'm so passionate about that because I want to be able to raise that awareness of what you can do yeah. to help your dog when they have those significant mobility challenges. And if you can restore mobility, awesome. And if we can't, we still can. We're just going to do it in a different way. That's why I have this yes. phrase in the group called, it's not over, it's just different. Yeah. Yeah. So that was. Yeah. That's, that is a beautiful background a for helping people understand the passion behind why you do what you do. I do think Sam's exceptional life living with her disease. Like she's the longest DM dog uh, in my personal career history, five years living with DM and living fully living happily until 24 hours before you decided to euthanize she. And then even the last day was just uh, not horrible, just not good. And rather than to allow her to walk down a path mm-hmm. of being more miserable, you just knew that there was not chance for recovery and you made wise decisions, painful, but wise. Five years of an animal going through a chronic degenerative disease is something that most people would say, it's too much. I, 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 I'm, I'm unwilling to do that because I don't have the tools. But I also think one of the reasons you're so highly motivated in providing people this wide tool belt of not just support, but tips and tricks and suggestions and ideas and resources and mobility aids is that that time is if you're if we can create quality of life and maintain mental and physical resiliency, even in a body that may be breaking that's precious time that allows your dogs mm-hmm. to still live quality of life and you still have time with your beloved. So this is a, a win-win, but it does take concerted planning. I am like you. I view my role as a veterinarian. The primary rehab people in our dog's life are their guardians. It's the mm-hmm. owners. You and I are kind of um, pop-in points of reference. We're kind of the uh, the team manager, the strategic uh boss, the overseer, the team cheerleader, the coach, but they come to us for, okay, this is this week's plan or this month's plan, but here's the deal. The body's going to change and healing is dynamic. Mm -hmm. So these are the exercises for this period of time. These are the supplements for this period of time. This is the protocol for the next three weeks, but whether you're dealing with a, 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 a disc that's about to blow a knee that's about to rupture or a body that you can tell just isn't right. It's working with trained professionals to do everything we can to minimize risk right now, maximize well-being right now, which means well-being, meaning we're managing pain, we're doing what we can to reduce the potential for further injury, any more degeneration while stabilizing the patient, but also creating a protocol to potentially, in many situations, come out of it. Just because you have a bulging disc or a pinched nerve, a disc that went, doesn't mean your dog has to be euthanized. It means you have to quickly and succinctly put together a plan. And I think part of the reason that we're having such success now, finally, in the physical rehab PT space with animals is that we're doing this combination multimodal approach of veterinarians working with physios or people that are giving clients specific instructions to do 
a protocol that puts into place a series of steps and actions that allow for healing to occur. But it's the swift action of a congealed multimodal approach that allows for that to occur. And that is what you are doing. Your goal is to work with veterinarians and other healthcare professionals to put into place actions that can swiftly mediate, resolve, and or maintain to the best of our ability, quality of life. And what can we do right now at this moment to, mm-hmm. to improve patient well-being? So when we think about this, Sarah, when it comes to for, I want before we walk down diseased and, and degenerated patients. I want to talk about the fact that most well-loved dogs, at least my patients, are not getting the physical exercise they need. In my opinion, to maintain their weight, maintain their muscle strength and resiliency, tendons and ligaments are not as healthy as they should be, which sets them up for lax joint structure early arthritic changes in the joints, lack of joint fluid, overall pain and inflammation, which begins kind of the downward spiral I see of these midlife dogs, four to six, starting to occasionally limp, decide to not go upstairs anymore, not get on the bed. And these are dogs that I would consider midlife. And none of this has to be the case. Part of intervention, main intervention, is pet parents, owners, and guardians recognizing, hey, things are shifting, no limping, no three-legged lameness, just that my my animal is not as active as they were last year. So let's start there, Sarah. Am I correct in assuming that you can that you are also seeing many midlife healthy animals not be optimized when it comes to body carton health. Absolutely. It's, I think that I love that you said swiftly when you were talking, because that's one of the challenges is a lot of people will wait until something is very wrong. You know, the dog that seems a little bit off suddenly is on three legs before they do something. And I can say from the professional's point of view, when you see something that's off, that's when you want to act. That's when you want to do something because the, it's so much easier. I don't know if easier is the right word, but yes. let's say with the theme of cranial cruciate or ligament injuries in the knee, because it's such a common, common one. If you're, and most people do not want to take the surgical approach and when it comes to that. And for us as a profession to help pet parents to help you when your dog has this injury, when it's mild, it's so much easier to intervene and put a plan in place and restore mobility. And if your goal is to, you know, avoid surgery as much as possible, you're much more likely to do it. If your dog is a tiny bit off, slightly off waiting than when they're toe touching or three legs. Yeah. So I think that the the early intervention is critical. And I think sometimes pet parents think they're seeing something, but they're not really sure. And the typical go-to strategy is a little bit of, <laughs> I'm not sure if we talked about this yet, but is that basically that here's an anti-inflammatory. Yeah. Rest your dog for the next week or two. And... 
we'll see how he does. And we'll see what and, happens. Exactly. We'll and see. and just so you know, everyone listening, reading, that's veterinary advice. So just to be clear, this is people yeah, saying, but- <laughs> hey, my, my dog is, you know, I just am noticing not a smooth gait, maybe offloading a little on that back foot. Or, you know, when they're standing eating, you'll see them pick the foot up just a hair, just because it's probably a little ouchy, but mild. As a concerned astute pet parent, you call your vet. Your vet says, hey, come pick up a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Rest your dog for a few weeks. Everything should be fine. The problem is we as veterinarians were not trained as physios in vet school. And that is not a good approach to managing a injured tendon or ligament. That is not wise. And Sarah, help us, help all of us understand why there are better options than an NSAID and rest for a week. Okay, so- I want to back up for a second, but if we think of a ligament and I'm looking around my room because I usually have props, but I don't have props with me. But if we think of muscle tissues, tendons, ligaments, um, muscles, when there's a, a strain, so a strain is actually when you get a little bit of a muscle tear. So when people talk about their hips or their dogs pull the hip flexor muscle, that would be a strain. Ligaments uh, don't have the same blood flow as muscles do. So they don't really heal. The reason the dog's knee often will restabilize depending on the, if it really was a cranial cruciate ligament um, injury is that the dog will begin to get scarred tissue. Sometimes they get this bony bump on the inside of their knee um, where extra bone is forming. So the body wants stability body craves stability and in the absence of it it's going to create it there's actually and this is kind of related to it um you know there's there's three i'm making a triangle but there's three things that kind of stabilize and one is the physical structure so joints want to be stable they want to fit together properly and that physical structure is something that holds that joint in place the other part of that is neuromuscular so there's this whole feedback loop of you know brain to joint back and forth information that helps to create a stimulus in that area to help stabilize that joint. And then there's the muscles and the strength and the muscles around the joint that help stabilize it. So when you have this ligament injury, then that structure is now disturbed. The problem is it doesn't really heal. And over here we have our neuromuscular and our muscles, but these muscles, don't want to fire because it hurts in this area and we get this inhibition and then we get this different information going to the brain about that area of space so that sometimes we refer to it as real estate but basically like different parts of the brain are associated with different parts of the body and that information changes in that area so suddenly we don't have good body awareness of our knee anymore. Our dog doesn't have good body awareness of their knee. You'll notice their thigh muscles, their quadriceps start to get a little smaller because they're getting this inhibition, this you know negative feedback loop. And then the physical structure doesn't work. And what happens is because we haven't retrained the system, we haven't taught the dog to use the leg again, we haven't addressed everything like and promoted healing versus just taking away pain, the likelihood of the dog re-injuring the leg is pretty high yeah, and probably the other leg, sadly. And dogs are already 60, 40 front end loaded. <laughs> so now we're putting more weight on the front end and using that back end less. And it just becomes this spiral where 
because dogs left to their own means will just run on three legs, right? Yeah. Um, but we want them to use that leg again, because again, if we're looking at how long they're going to be with us and how awesome their life is going to be, we don't want them to have pain and problems with that limb that could be a problematic later in life. So yeah, we're trying to address it, but it's just a negative cycle where we're not introducing the right exercises and the right stressors. Um, stressors sound probably sounds like the wrong word, but when tissues heal, we want to increase the load through mm -hmm. tissues. And what I mean by that is if I fell and I hurt my wrist and I, let's say it's really sore. So if I go to move it like this, it's going to hurt a lot. And if I go and lean on it, it's going to really hurt. But maybe if I put some ice on it and then use my other hand to bend it back and forth, it doesn't hurt that much. And then it actually starts to feel good because it's getting some movement, some blood flow, you know, some of the swelling's going away. Because movement is medicine. It's just getting that right yeah. movement. As this starts to feel better over a couple days, maybe I'm beginning to be able to move my wrist on my own. Yeah. And then maybe I start picking up light, light objects. Yes. Yeah. Right. Eventually I'll weight bear through it. But I'm going through this gradual progression because the body responds and heals based off the amount of force that's put through the tissues, yeah. but that force has to be appropriate for the stage of healing. That's one of the reasons that, you know, for that re-injury is we don't go through these stages, scar yeah. tissue forms, you take your dog off the, or your dog finishes the anti-inflammatories and you're like, yes, they can run again. And you go outside and you throw the check it and your dog runs back to you on three legs. And you're like, mm -hmm. and it, it continues to happen because we haven't given the body the right amount of force at that stage of healing to do what it can to stabilize and repair itself. Yeah. And then it just keeps happening over and over and over again. And I see so many pet parents going through that. And then if you want to add inactivity and body weight to that, like one yeah. of the big, um, probably the main recommendation for almost every musculo, I think probably every musculoskeletal injury in dogs is weight management. It's something like, I want to say, and I might be getting it wrong off the top of my head, but it's something like four times for every pound your dog is overweight. It's like four pounds of additional force through that cranial cruciate ligament. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, the body weight and the, is a big part of it. But the part that I find people often miss is that exercise. They're like, I'm going to figure this out on my own, but yes. it's understanding that loading sequence and understanding ways to kind of trick and teach the body to use the leg again. Like I'll do little things like, again, I'm looking around, but I don't have anything around me. Like put a hair elastic on the okay. unaffected leg. So I encourage the dog to wait for more on the affected leg at some point, little tricks and things like that, that retrain one of those parts of that triangle for stability. Right. That's so, so I'm gonna re, I'm gonna regurgitate what I what I believe that, that makes sense. What, I, what what you're what you're summarizing. If you see your dog's physical anatom anatomical structures limp, um, strange posture, strange anything 
physical, it's enough to take note. And if you see it repeated enough, the body speaks to us through symptoms. And those are symptoms that are saying having a problem here. If it's a pain, if it's just a shoot, let's say sciatica, dogs can get sciatica. If it's a disc, it could just be all of a sudden, oh my gosh, my, you know, just instant screaming from the dog. Those are all symptoms saying things are not okay because most veterinarians, some veterinarians are trained in rehabilitation therapies. Many aren't that it's a okay to ask your veterinarian or to take it upon yourself to find a physio that will do telehealth to ask your veterinarian, Hey, I'm seeing that I've got a musculoskeletal issue. This may not be your forte. We may want to add a healthcare practitioner to our team now that is well-versed in musculoskeletal support, rehabilitation and recovery that that's a okay. And the sooner we intervene with a professional, the better we're going to be. But then let's loop that back to what can we do other than wait to potentially help our companions' bodies. Uh, Maintaining their weight is good, but you can be very thin and not strong. So what else can we be doing, Sarah, to make our animals' bodies, other than maintaining weight, which I totally agree with you, that's key factor number one. Make sure your dog is lean and not fat. Make sure you're providing the raw materials. Good, healthy food is really important. Micronutrients, minerals, and key vitamins are cofactors for physiologic reactions that help manage inflammation in the body. So there are pro-inflammatory diets and anti-inflammatory diets. Choose food well, yes. But other than good anti-inflammatory variety and nutrition and maintaining weight, that's about as far as veterinarians didn't even even learn the food piece in veterinary medicine. What we got in veterinary medicine is the very best way to extend your pet's life and reduce arthritis is maintain their weight. Okay, got it. What else? But that's as far as veterinary training goes. So from a physio perspective, there's a lot more we could be doing to minimize degeneration and potential injury in our dogs and cats. Can you speak a little bit about if you're putting, I don't I hope you've had proactive wellness client say, listen, I went through this before. I had one, I had three dachshunds blow discs. Here's my six month old dachshund. I'm not doing this again, girl. I'm not doing it. So what can we do? Because I cannot live through another blown disc in a dachshund. I will have dachshunds till the day I die, but I can't live through another blown back. So there's a bunch of stuff we can do, but we just don't know about it. Absolutely. And there's kind of two approaches and it depends on what your resources are, because if you can get somebody to actually do a mobility assessment of your dog to see how they're moving and, you know, if they're shifting their weight too far forward, if they're leaning to one side, are their thighs actually, you know, symmetrical? Symmetrical. Are there there four? We, We often forget as well about those four front legs that are doing so much work. Um, especially if we look at our dogs that do have carts and things like that, or our older dogs. So we actually want, you know, if you're able to have someone do an entire mobility assessment, a gait analysis, there's so much you can tell just by the way your dog moves without ever even touching them, uh, how they stand, how they sit. It's a whole like functional assessment. And then, you know, a little bit more hands-on I do encourage folks, pet parents to go that way. It's worth it because we can see things, you know, (laughs) I said to somebody before, she's like, um, 
it's, uh, basically, you know, this mobility assessment is a lot less expensive than surgery, which could be down the road if we miss something that's going on. Yeah. Because it's a predominant thing. And there are some breeds, sadly, that, you know, things like intervertebral disc disease is very predominant. Um, so the mobility assessment, but beyond that, even as a pet parent on your own, there's a few things that you want to do. One is like, diversify. So I was thinking mm -hmm. about you, know, what are the common misconceptions or common challenges? And then what can pet parents do about it? And it kind of fits into the too much or too little category. Yeah. And, and usually it's the too little, but I, I just want to touch on the too much for a moment because mm -hmm. I do, I do see that things like the weekend warrior syndrome where your schedule is really crazy. Your dog goes out in the backyard during the week, walks around, does his thing. And then on the weekend, you feel really bad because he hasn't walked all week. So you take him with the kids to the dog park and he runs like a maniac for two hours. And then he hobbles like an old man the next yeah. day. And then that repeats over and over again. And it's like me going to the gym once a week and doing something like CrossFit, right? And then leading a sedentary life for the remainder of the week. The likelihood of me hurting myself is actually pretty good. I'm probably not going to be a very nice person because <laughs> I'm not going to be very yeah. happy and feel good. Yeah. Or immobile the next day, right? You yeah. Just be, right. Um, you'd be, you have to call in sick for work because you can't get out of bed. That. Because I can't get up. Because I yes. can't get up. And one of the things I encourage people to do when their lifestyle, you know, there's different factors that don't, that make it harder for us to be active and, you know, not controversial, but maybe a tiny bit. Our dogs are also a reflection of us and our lifestyle and the lifestyle that we are living as well. So we want to take that into consideration. Um, but beginning to do even a little bit, the, I think part of the misconception is, oh my gosh, I need to dedicate 30 minutes every day to exercising my dog and doing this because that's what we do, right? We go to the gym for a half an hour and do this program or we, because we've kind of worked physical activity out of our life so we're, or exercise out of our life. So we put it back in in these blocks. But you don't have to do that with your dogs. In fact, I encourage people to just attach an exercise and we can talk about which ones might be appropriate to an activity. Dogs are so much happier when they, work for their food like shuby she will not eat for a like if it's she hasn't gone for her walk and done a couple of things she's like no i don't not interested working for her food and then getting the reward of the food is like all of those you know neurotransmitters the serotonin the dopamine all those things our dogs want to work for their food so taking for example it's breakfast time and doing a little bit of like teaching your dog to stand. People often ask me, what is one exercise I wish everybody would teach their dog? It's not sit, it's stand. It's stand, please teach your dog to stand <laughs> because it's so much more functional. And if you think about a dog as when they're puppies, they need to find their balance, their body awareness in that stance, they engage their core and then through adulthood. And then we get into our senior dogs and our geriatric dogs and they get have to get that sway back. And, you know, they have difficulty standing up and standing is such a functional movement that we, mm -hmm. you know, to teach your dog to stand. So 
you know, teaching your dog to stand at mealtime and maybe doing some rhythmic stabilization where you have your hands on their hips and you're gently nudging them from side to side. And the idea is the dog actually will stabilize against you. So if I'm pushing on one hip, so it's the bony prominence on the side of the hip, and I nudge, I should get resistance. And I nudge, do this on a non-flip surface, by the way, um, always, but those little nudges. So you're attaching an exercise and you can go through the body with that. You can stimulate the spine a little bit because we want those muscles along the spine to fire, to hold the dog there. So you can do a little scratch along the spine. And then they, you do that for like 30 seconds before they eat. They go out for their wonder around the yard. Maybe you have a step that they walk into into the house and they do front paws up on the step that they get some stretch through their hip flexors. They lengthen their top line. They weight bear through their hind limbs and you get them to hold it as long as they tolerate it. So you, you begin to point as you begin to attach the exercise. Yeah. To so just something day to else day, just, just day to day movements, just day to day yeah. movements that your dogs are already doing. Yeah, exactly. I think attaching it to something that's already happening takes away the pressure of having to coordinate something. Yeah. If you have a sporting dog, this is different. The, yeah. You should be doing a lot more and you should be doing conditioning, but doing something is still better than doing nothing. And you get used to knowing what your dog's normal is. So if yeah. something is lurking, then you're more aware, like, well, he just really, every time I nudge him that way, he seems to just keep going. I can't get him to weight bear through that leg. Then you're beginning to learn about your dog's mobility, right? And then you're beginning to learn about what's normal and what's not. So that that's one thing. The other thing is, um, just to touch on quickly, when, let's say you manage to get to the dog part, but you only get 10 minutes. So your dog jumps out of the car and you take the check it and you throw and you throw and you throw and you throw and you drove like 10 minutes to the park. I wouldn't, or an athlete would never go to a track yeah. and, sprint. and sprint. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the body needs a little bit of warm up. It needs to get the blood flowing to raise the temperature to get this tissues a little bit more mobile and just the awareness. So it prepares itself. So, you know, a couple minutes of, of movement. And then on the other end, you know, again, you wouldn't just sprint and sprint and sprint and then jump back in your car and sit there for the next hour and go home and sleep to, to bring the body temperature back down, the heart rate back down to stretch out a few things a little bit so that you're maintaining some of that tissue flexibility. So having a little bit of a warm up and cool down in there, even if it's only a couple minutes before you start to throw the ball, will also reduce the likelihood. I see that one a lot at the yeah, it's good. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I once had a client actually that super active uh, guy, mountain biked, had this beautiful border collie, six years old, and the border collie, border collies, right? <laughs> They're a little bit crazy, and she would, he would run with him mountain biking every day for six years up over rocks down all of this and it's this repetitive same movement over and over and over again without allowing for the opportunity for recovery so the body can repair itself and you know adapt and and to do other things as well and cross train in other ways you know he he came to me because his wrists are shot yeah. yeah we wrists were shot and again had I seen him before, it would have been so much easier 
than where he was then. And there's still things you can do if your dog is kind of, yeah. if you're like, but, oh gosh, I, I'm doing that now. I've ruined my dog. You bring up a really good point though, Sarah, that a lot of people say my dog wouldn't do it if it hurt them or they didn't want to. That that is not true. (laughs) Dogs live their best life. And if they're going to die today on the trail with dad, mountain biking, they don't give two hoots, nor are they thinking about that. They, if dad's going to go mountain biking, I'm going to, and I'm going to give my best life until I physically can't touch my feet to the ground. Cause that's how much pain I'm in. There's no thought about body respect. There's no thought yeah. about, Hey, I'm going to protect and preserve my joints or I overdid it yesterday. So I'm going to back off today, especially with a driven, intelligent breed, like a border collie, they will abuse their bodies till they are immobilized. So letting your dog set for, for driven dogs, letting your dog set the pace is not wise. We have to advocate for them. So that's an important piece that you you. bring up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it actually touches nicely as a leeway into the too little. Um, I was going to start with older dogs, but I'd actually like to start with puppies because as well, because sometimes I see as, you know, people want I, I just want to exhaust my my la- my lab puppy because he's insane or she's crazy. And we don't want to take any animal to exhaustion and especially puppies and things like that because they're growing and we can actually do damage if we do the wrong exercises. So obviously I'm a big advocate of movement and movement is medicine. It, it helps, the, you know, the body is meant to move, but it has to be the right movement at the right stage of life. And if there's an injury at the appropriate stage of healing and puppies, you know, they're still growing and we don't want to put damage to their, their growth plates, to their long bones or anything like that. And they don't have that good control and body awareness. They yeah. will keep going until they literally fall over. Cause especially, well, not all breeds, but many of them, but that shouldn't be the goal. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I did want to mention that on the flip side, though, what I often see, especially with larger breed dogs, you know, is that they, you know, pet parents are told to to not let them be active, that this is going to cause problems with their joints. There's a condition called hip dysplasia, which is very common in large breed dogs. And dysplasia, if you ever hear that, um, you know, if pet parents ever hear that word, it basically just means it's something doesn't fit together congruently. A joint is meant to fit together nice and tight. Displacia just means it, it basically doesn't. It's a fancy word. It, because it doesn't, down the road, it can lead to osteoarthritis, which is sometimes also called hip dysplasia. But it's a kind of a different one than one that is uh, because the joint isn't symmetrical in a, in a puppy. But... It's interesting. I, I, they are now recognizing <laughs> the body learns so much, especially in those early, really early, like even before you get your dog, like when if you're, you know, when the dog's still with the breeder, when the dog's still very pup, a puppy, there's so much going on from a neurodevelopmental point of view. And they actually did a study. Um, there was a study, I, th- I believe it was out of Norway, and it looked at large breeds. I think it had over 600 dogs in it. There was over a hundred litters and it was around hip dysplasia and environmental factors that potentially contributed. And what they found, there was a couple of things that were really interesting related to this is that 
dogs that were born in the fall winter versus dogs that were born in the spring summer, the fall winter dogs actually had a higher prevalence of hip dysplasia than the spring summer dogs. And those spring summer dogs, one of the differences as well was the ones that were born in the spring and the summer were outside a lot more moving, and they had a yeah. moving and they had a little bit more free range to move across different terrains. Yeah. Um, you know, a little bit of grass, dirt, little ups and downs and all of those things. So they're learning, their nervous system is developing. They're learning about balance. They're learning about proprioception, body awareness and core control. And they're also actually probably building a little bit of muscle. So remember I said that, you know, neuromuscular, anatomical neuromuscular, muscular strength, they're building that little bit of muscle that's helping to stabilize that area. And those dogs actually had lower incidences of hip yeah. dysplasia. And this is in the first couple of months of their life. This isn't yeah. like three months down the road. Adults, this is like, yeah. yeah. When they're still developing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. again, you're not going to go out and run a dog like that or, and do, you know, high impact activities, but the movement is actually advantageous. It's really important for a yeah. whole gamut of reasons. And that really trends through your dog's entire life. Yeah. Like the On the other end of the spectrum, when we talk about our senior dogs or geriatric dogs, and just as a side note on the geriatric dogs, I find it really interesting because with people, we, when we see geriatric, we use it as a means of explaining ability, like basically geriatric folks uh, have a, they're more frail. They have more decline in their independence and things like that versus just the age, yeah. um, which I thought was interesting when we talk about dogs, but nevertheless, our senior dogs or geriatric dogs, the excuse of the decline in mobility is because they're old. Right. This doesn't jive. Yes. Age is one of the number one predictors of how long your dog's going to live, but you know, that decline in mobility means there's something changing. There's something going on, especially if yeah. it's coupled with behavioral changes, changes in personality and things yeah. like that. And I think that a lot of these older dogs or any dog really for that matter, we miss pain is sometimes missed because it's a behavior change. And we think the dog is just, you know, acting out or cranky or doesn't want to do that anymore because they're old or yeah not. and we and miss just, it just wants we don't to sleep them... more right just he's, right he's 10 so he just wants to sleep more but there's yes. a very good chance we've got some unaddressed inflammation and pain exactly exactly and that's a big issue with that that i think that we shouldn't minimize and in addition to that what happens when your dog starts doesn't want to jump into the car anymore you start yeah. picking them up but there's such there's this functional thing you can do in between where maybe, you know, there is some arthritis, maybe he's got some lumbosacral pain and there's some arthritis down there and a little bit of hip stuff going on and jumping just isn't appropriate at this time. You could pick him up or maybe you get him a harness and a dog ramp and he walks into the car. So he's getting some range of motion, walking in and out of the car. He's weight bearing. He's keeping his core stability and balance and he's building some strength in his back end and he's doing it on his own with your yes. supporting him. So he's maintaining his function for his independence or you could just pick him up. 
which one but, is going to contribute to yeah, exactly. the longer life and the better yeah. life, right? Yeah. So, so that's a really good, simple, I might say trick, but like, that's a really good tip that when you start to see these changes, I think sometimes it's human nature to say, okay, we should just expect that. And maybe we should, but that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. If your dog hesitates before going upstairs or jumping into the car, totally acknowledge that. But rather than to say, okay, we'll just block off the stairs or not put him in the car or pick him up. There are great things we can do to help the bot, to help retrain the body in a new time space reality that allows Mm -hmm. your dog to safely continue to do stairs or continue to get in out of the car with some, with a new plan, with a new plan, with a new plan. And and the other piece of that is just like humans, there's so many parallels between animals and ourselves. And the premise is all the same. It it really is a use it or lose it scenario. There is, you know, some muscle wasting that is going to happen. Um, and things like that. So, you know, the sarcopenia, that type of stuff. So anything that you can do that's going to create stimulus for the nervous system and promote, you know, maintaining some muscle mass in a way that doesn't cause your dog discomfort, then you're, you're on the right path that way. And that's where sometimes it takes somebody else to work with, to, to figure out some of those things. Um, but I really think that, you know, when your dog's mobility changes, we want independence, we want function, but we need to acknowledge where our dog is at because they're trying to tell us something. We, you know, we just need to listen and then, then we can. And so modifying a plan, modifying the plan that worked maybe three or six months ago, we don't throw in the towel. Ideally we modify the plan. Absolutely. And, and things like non-slip surfaces, they did this with the, um, that was another thing that came out of the puppy hip dysplasia study as well was, you typically now I remember from my childhood, which feels like it was, I think it was a really long time ago. Uh, my mom used to get her, her dogs, a breeder, and they would always have the puppies on newspaper. Yeah. Right. And what they actually found was that dogs that were on newspaper or on slippery floors had again, higher prevalence sure. of hip dysplasia than, um, than the dogs that had good traction. And then if we look at our senior dogs and we want them to use their back legs and we want them to have comfort in their front legs and we're doing things with them, you know, instead of being Bambi on ice, I don't know if you've ever hurt your knee and then tried to stand on a slippery, something slippery. You're like, yeah. Right. To be able to have the grip gives your dog more confidence to be able to use the limbs. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that, um, that just people who have smooth floors, we underestimate what that would feel like to an animal who's starting to lose muscle mass, which is strength. They end up becoming weaker. What that, you know, if you notice that your animal sees your gorgeous hardwood floor in front of them coming out of the bedroom and stops and they used to just go right across and not thinking the other, but you see your dog stop and start to approach it like they're walking on an ice rink Mm -hmm. that tells you something that we can acknowledge address and, and first of all, prevent injury from, but also Mm -hmm. there are great things we can do to, to 
to slow down the muscle atrophy, to, to yeah. reduce how quickly sarcopenia or muscle wasting is occurring. But mm-hmm. now's the time, like the second that you see hesitation, and if your dog has never hesitated, that's the time to address it. hundred percent. And, you know, if we're talking about, I know that you talk a lot about health span and lifespan, we know actually from the human side and it applies on the animal side that muscles, not just age, but actual muscle strain is an indicator of health span. How long is your dog going to maintain a good life, not just a long life? So you want to do things. If that's your your goal is to give your dog, which I hope everyone is, is to give your dog a good life. You want to do things that are going to safely help promote muscle mass. And the other piece of it that we didn't really touch on, but I think is really important is the mental health side of it and the cognitive side of it. With people, we actually use, you know, walking speed as an indicator of cognitive decline. And now they've actually published a study doing the same thing with dogs. On the flip side of that, you know, you can, you know, the the whole BDNF, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, like exercise, physical activity actually stimulates this and BDNF then helps to, you know, it's your dog's cognition, they're learning uh, all of these things. And then you're getting all of the, you know, ability to manage stress. I don't know about you, but if I'm like having a moment, sometimes I'm like, I just need to go walk. And then I come back and I'm I'm like a different person. Fido's the same, right? So that whole... So I have a, so I have a, just a thought about this. Uh, We just interviewed environmental enrichment, uh, Jill Woodward expert, who was talking about how getting your animals on different surfaces, sand and Mm -hmm. gravel Mm -hmm. and grass and, and just as many different surfaces as much. She's like, you wouldn't think of that as enrichment and yet it's sensory input. So it's like, it's, it's like subconscious enrichment. You're the, the, your animal's brain still has to take it in, adapt. And it's like, Hey, what is this? That's still helping to keep those neurosynapses stimulated and new and refreshed. So just exposing your animal to a variety of different environments, including walking Mm -hmm. surfaces and temperatures and sounds and smells. That's one of the things when we did forever dog that I totally underestimated was I was certainly aware of the emotional mental aspects that dogs and cats Mm -hmm. both need a lot of sensory input. They have evolved hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling their environment, and they need that to be mentally, to cognitively well. I think we've underestimated that contribution to lifespan that, that some of these, like we movement is important, no doubt, but it's interesting that you brought up over-exercise because that was Joe's first point was listen, playing chuck it, we think that that's that a tired dog is a good dog. And to some extent that's true, but that doesn't mean that their brain is tired or stimulated or fed or producing the neurotransmitters they need to be cognitively well for the next decade. That isn't done by just running your dog to death, that there yeah. are other things involved. But then this plays a nicely, Sarah, to a little transition to our last topic, which is there are some dogs that can no longer walk well. And that's when this sensory Mm -hmm. input becomes front and center when it comes to maintaining not just cognition, but emotional and mental well-being. Can you speak to that? Because I really do believe you creating intentional brain games for Sam is one of the reasons she was fired up 
to get up every morning as an immobile dog was, okay, yeah. what crazy games are we going to play today? What treats are involved? Where's it going to be? Will it be outside? Will the wind be blowing? Or is it going to be cold or warm? Or where are we going to do it? Are we going to go to the park to do it? Are we going to do it in the backyard? Are we going to, you know, those, though you provided endless opportunities for a paraplegic dog to experience sensorially her environment. And that I believe is generally underestimated as dogs age. I think that's huge. I think that something that I've learned as well as, and Shubisa even taught me this a bit, is that dogs all have their own sort of things that they really, like Sam was a shepherd. So she was a nose girl. Like she was smart and she wanted to use her nose and find stuff. And that was part of what I was doing with her. Some dogs are diggers. Shuby likes to use her nose, but in a different way than Sam did. She literally digs with her nose, right? So, and you know, you have your dogs that want to find it. And then you have your dogs that want to retrieve. And so it's the qualities that are innate to your dog and incorporating those into the exercises and things you're doing and giving them that opportunity, even though they might be using their body in a different way, and then being able to support their body in a different way. So you mentioned Sam was in a wheelchair. And I'm sure a lot of people, you know, to be honest, there's some parts of the world where people think dog wheelchairs are are cruel, and they're unnatural. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you watching my dog run down the beach in the water after Reggie, (laughs) side chucking them as I'm running behind her while people are laughing. She was having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, but it's it, again, understanding how to use these tools and in what environment, I think one of the saddest things that happens when our dogs get old or older, or they have these neurologic conditions and their, you know, their body doesn't do what they want to anymore is we start to isolate them and they don't get the socialization and they don't get the sensory input and they don't get the, all those things that are natural to them. And then people are like, they seem to be whining a lot and complaining a lot. And I was like, well, I would too, if I was sitting they're on the board living floor looking out the window. Yes. Yes. But they're bored still. And there's, there's a misconception that they can't do things, which isn't really accurate. It's just learning how to do them in a slightly different yeah. way. I saw, yeah. I'm not sure if you ever saw this video. It made me cry. I think it was a Corgi. Um, with DM, it was either D- no, it was IVDDD, and he was in a wheelchair, and they set up an agility course for him, uh, but no poles, uh, and he ran the agility uh, course, and I'm getting chills. Yeah. It was the most beautiful thing I've uh, ever seen because he was so happy, so and he happy. was doing what he loved to do, and kudos to modified his that yeah, with like, well, he's still my dog; he can still do these things. He's just going to do it in a different way because it's not about yeah. how high he can jump; it's about him right. having a good life. Right. And being happy, right? The experience. Yeah. So I think a lot of it has to do with learning what adaptions are available. Because I always say yes. to people, you know, things like DM, it's going to be hard. I'm not going to say it's not going to be hard. There's definitely, you know, nobody likes it when their dog gets older, let alone has a neurologic condition. But it can be a little bit less hard. And you just haven't learned yet what to do and that there's still a lot of good things and good times to be had within there. If you have the right tools and resources available to you. So that is a perfect point to pivot to 
tools and resources, because I agree, whether you have an older dog that has started mm-hmm. in with a heinous degenerative disease diagnosis like DM, or you have a thriving three-year-old dog that just ran out into traffic and is now paralyzed. There is a smack you in the face, fall down period where you have to get a grasp and then make a plan. But hopefully this interview will inspire people who are dealing either with recognizing that their animal is slowing down or they've had a traumatic physical experience with their animal. It doesn't mean there are only, there's only one choice, euthanasia. It does mean that for you to help your animal have a functional quality of life, it is up to you to be empowered or inspired enough to make a plan and relatively quickly to help preserve remaining quality of life. You want to help your animal get back in a brand new game with a brand new plan, with a brand new set of perpetually changing protocols that allows your animals to live like life differently, but still live life. And Sarah, I know that you have dedicated your professional career to helping people that have had this hit by a truck experience where it's like my dog just went down and they're never going to walk again. You have set up resources and tools and a support group for animals that, and for humans who have animals that whose bodies are not functioning uh, at a hundred percent. And I think that just having a community of recognizing there are other people who love their animals more than anything, dealing with the same stuff is incredibly supportive, but also the sharing and the, the tips and Hey, this worked for my dog. Try it. I mean, just knowing that there's this incredible resource of thousands of pet parents dealing with the same Mm -hmm. stuff allows for a little bit of support to come in for us as guardians, but also opens up this wealth of information that can begin to empower people to make choices and plans that allow for their animals to regain happiness. And it's possible. So can you walk us through uh, what your website is or what platforms you have that allow people to have some of these tools? I definitely can. In fact, I would be very happy to because I it really is a passion point of mine because I really believe that, like you said, these things happen and you have to work through it, but every dog I believe deserves a second chance at leading an active and mobile and happy life despite injury or illness. And every pet parent deserves the opportunity to give their dog that. And, And it's through learning and having a supportive community. And I think that's a big piece of it because a lot of people feel very isolated. Yes. When this happens, why me? It hasn't happened to any dog. Oh, I've been told it's not very common. Or my vet doesn't know. Like my vet said, there's nothing. That's a big one, Sarah. And it I makes know you crazy. This, right. So, and I'm just going to say it because I'm the vet on this interview. Uh, you, I have oftentimes been told people come to me because they're like, Hey, my vet said there's no hope. And it's like, what? Um, my brother's dog tore his second his remaining ACL, he's a 10-year-old dog. And the vet said, you want to drop six grand on a dog that's going to be crippled up after we do the surgery? Oh. And jo- and my brother said, well, what are you what are you insinuating? Oh. And the vet said, you have a 10-year-old, 80-pound, he's not fat, just a big, big, you know, big, great Dane mixed dog who's blown 
his remaining knee. And then mm-hmm. there was this long, uncomfortable silence. And John said, I think he was insinuating to put him to sleep. I said, I think so too. That's and horrible. this is not bashing my profession. I am not bashing my fellow colleagues. We were not taught in vet school about all the amazing options that are available. So for people that maybe Mm. live in North Dakota and they're like, Hey, this would be great. I don't have an underwater treadmill in my neighborhood. There are still things you can do in the middle of nowhere that can be incredibly beneficial. So sorry for interrupting, uh, but I needed to just make sure that, that people know that your veterinarian could be the one saying there's no hope, but I couldn't agree with you more, Sarah. Sometimes there is not hope. And sometimes euthanasia is the most humane option. However, for you to put your head on your pillow at night and know that you've done all you can do, I do believe you have to give your animal the option for second chance before you say, I really did exhaust all the opportunities because so more times than not, when you give a dog or a kitty an opportunity to heal, they take it and literally run with it on wheels. Mm -hmm. Life is Mm -hmm. different, but they take the opportunity for healing. And it's not only an inspiration to everyone around them, they have a second chance at life. So at least providing them the opportunity to get a second chance is, I think, unless resources are so impossible that you cannot do a teleconference zoom call with a rehab professional, unless that is outside, if you are impossible of doing that, then there probably isn't hope. But at a minimum, doing a teleconference with someone who can provide you the basic beginning step one, step two, step three is a really good place to start. Absolutely. It's actually something. So I do online, I call it online mobility coaching. But exactly that. There's so much that you can see in a video. And one of the reasons I started doing this was during COVID. And there was this study that came out on the human side that said, basically, even if you know the outcome of what's going to happen, having a plan and actually implementing that plan can go a really long way for mitigating the stress the anxiety and letting you feel like you're doing something instead of just being a passive bystander. Right, Sam, Sarah, five years, you and I both knew that she was not going to be cured of a degenerative neurologic disease, that it was a dark closing tunnel that led to black, Mm -hmm. but that didn't prevent either one of us from doing everything we could. Mm-hmm. And she had five magnificent years, not degenerative, questionable years. She wasn't just surviving in a broken body. She had five excellent years. And we both knew it was a very, it was a dead end street, but that didn't prevent us from making a really good plan. It also worked because we worked together. Yes. Yes, And I think that's a big takeaway. There are lots of people like myself <laughs> out there that can help with these types of things. I mean, as a physical therapist, physiotherapist, we're mobility experts. Everybody has their niche, their thing. They're, you know, not everybody is the way I am about dogs and wheelchairs and things like that. But my point being is that there are resources. A lot of people don't know they even exist until their dog has a problem. Um, but if you look and, you know, Dr. Becker, I can share directories with you as well. There's lots of resources out there. 
I myself have my Facebook group. I'm starting a podcast because I really just want to reach more people. I do one-to-one mobility coaching online and I work with pet parents here, not right here, but like in my community. So each one looks different. Each one has its pros and cons, but you don't have to be a passive bystander to your dog aging or having a injury or a disease and feel like you can't do anything because there are people that can help you. That is a perfect way to end this hopefully very empowering interview about the fact that for many of our animals, there can be trauma, unexpected accidents and trauma that disrupt their ability to move normally. And if it's not, God forbid, an accident or trauma, life will cause the body, all of our bodies to slow down. That is a natural part of aging, but that doesn't mean that we're powerless with no tools and no resources to keep the body comfortable, to do what we can to slow down the process. And most importantly, to make sure that we're tending to our animals' needs every step of the way to assure that we are counting for quality of life, pain management, to do all we can to to increase health span as our animals go along their lifespan. And Sarah, I appreciate you having this candid and honest and forthright and inspiring conversation because it's the conversation that is oftentimes, it's uncomfortable for people to think about their animals degenerating and or having a physical crisis, it it's oftentimes something like, hey, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. But sometimes you're left there and just being aware that there are resources out there is the first step of being able to give your animals the second chance that they deserve. So I appreciate your expertise in diving into this subject matter. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. And you're actually part of my inspiration for finding my voice and the work that you do and the courage you showed up with every day to help pet parents and step into the unknown a little bit. So thank you again for the opportunity. I I really do appreciate it. And hopefully we can reach more pet parents. And thank you for inspiring me to help find my voice. Mm. Thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed today's video and learned fresh wisdom and insights from our special guest. Stay tuned for more interviews in celebration of creating Happy Healthy Pets 2023. See you soon.